Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with David Brown and Andy Green. We'll be joined in a minute by Brittany Spanos. And today we thought we would talk about Firefest and also some of the predecessors of the festival in the past. Two festivals I'm sure will go really well in the future, which are the two sort of Woodstock anniversary festivals this year. I'm sure that will go perfectly. But Firefest, there's been these two documentaries on Hulu and Netflix, both kind of extraordinary. It's all just amazing. There's so much there. Let's start with the idea of the music at Firefest because purportedly the whole time it was a music festival. Everyone kept saying music festival. They had musical guest book. They had Blink-182. They had Major Laser. Of course, the festival was a disaster. People showed up and there were soggy mattresses instead of luxury accommodations. They were trapped on the island. It was the worst disaster since Woodstock 99. And we'll get to the Woodstock links because I think that's really interesting. But fundamentally, I was fascinated by how little anyone cared about the music. There was a moment in there when Blink-182 canceled before the festival started. They explained that they weren't able to put on the show that they would want to put on and therefore they didn't want to go. And one of the attendees was like, my friend told me that Blink-182 canceled, do you still want to go to the festival? And he's like, I've never been to a Blink-182 concert. I don't know what the show they want to put on. I don't care. These people did not care one bit about the music. Yeah, but they didn't market it really as a music event. It was marketed as a chance to be on a very exclusive island with beautiful models that will be in bikinis. You can enter the world of luxury Instagram and just live in it for three days. And that was what they were marketing. Exactly. Right. All that initial social media campaign didn't mention a single music act, right? It was just footage of those kind of women on the beach in the water and maybe photos of the island. I don't think they even mentioned a single act. Well, that's sort of what I'm getting at, which is the devaluation of music at a purported music festival. Brittany, did you notice that? It's just how much of it is part of an ongoing trend where Coachella sells out before people even know what's playing. There's a danger sometimes of music becoming the background noise of like Instagram photos, right? I mean, Yeah, it's definitely Instagram influencer culture. You want to be pictured at these events. That was the most shocking thing about Coachella when I went last year was everyone I saw just had their own personal photographer with them and they were just getting their photo taken in front of the ferris wheel or just in the background there wasn't the same passion that you see at a lot of concerts or smaller festivals like i think there is this idea that you want the vip experience you don't want to go to actually like be out in the sun and go wait hours to see bands anymore like you want to be photographed in a really cute outfit outside of a stage just telling people that you're there i mean it speaks to a larger devaluation of music perhaps even at coachella itself i was telling these guys before the show when i went 10 years ago 12 years ago actually maybe 13 years ago, it was an entirely different thing. It was a hardcore music fan festival Mm -hmm. that have like Bauhaus as one of the headliners and uh, really catered to people who were very serious about music, barely any pop at all. Not that that indicates a lack of seriousness about music, but it was not mainstream. In fact, you know, when I went, it it wasn't that many years after I went to Woodstock 99 and I was really struck by the difference in the crowd, the difference in everything, because the music was at the very center of everything. You would not come if you weren't a music fan. And it's the same festival, same name, same location and it's changed so dramatically and I think that again that symbolizes yeah. something larger. Yeah and I think it is definitely noteworthy that Bonnaroo is much more of a music first festival and their sales are going way way down. That could be replicated in so many places whereas the Coachella brand is more than music which is why it's been successful. 
I think. And there was a moment in one of the fire docks, well, actually in both of them, it's compared to the original Woodstock. But in Netflix one, they point out that the original Woodstock in 1969 was itself an organizational disaster. There was traffic backed up for miles. There were sanitation issues. It was on every level a disaster, and yet it became legendary. And they were like, well, basically, maybe we can become legendary too. And they did in their own way. So there's Woodstock 94, which had its own problems, but didn't rise to the level of symbolism the way the one before and the one after did. And then Woodstock 99, which symbolized sort of a, the kids are not all right for the generation of the late 90s. And then I think Firefest really was the millennial Woodstock in some ways, in the sense that it, it didn't happen. <laughs> it, it, it was so hollow at its core, which it doesn't speak to Gen Z millennials as a whole, but speaks to one aspect of this like sort of influencer culture. Yeah, I think the other important thing to remember with Fire is that most people didn't know it was happening. Most Blink-182 fans probably weren't even looking to buy tickets to fire. They're probably like, well, that's a cool thing that exists. Like, I'm not going to spend thousands of dollars, though, to go do this. I think for most people, it just like wasn't on their radar. But it definitely was something for this influencer culture, this culture of upper crust millennials who can afford to throw away money on a festival that, again, didn't happen. And the funny comparison in the movie when they do bring up Woodstock, like you say, I mean, Woodstock actually did happen in terms of the music. Despite all those conditions, there were still three days of bands. You know, So when they made that comparison to the fire people to that, I thought, well, yes and no. You know, well, actually, somebody did make a note of music. Not only that, but there was an ethos. (laughs) It meant something. You know, there was absolutely no meaning to what Fire Festival was planning to do. And I do think actually that, again, speaks to the current moment in that the festival everyone's talking about was not meant for everyone. It was only meant for rich people, which, of course, is also very much of the moment of American society right now. Not only did they plan a festival that was exclusionary by nature by being on, first of all, this island that... (laughs) They first wanted to hold on an island that had no plumbing. Then they moved it. But just to get there was very difficult. Then, as the Hulu documentary reveals, they pretended that the GA tickets were sold out so you could only buy the luxury (laughs) packages. So it was entirely meant for the richest segment of millennials. Right. And that's a big reason in which so many people, they were so happy as it melted down. Mm -hmm. To watch them suffer for so much, the country was just ecstasy. Yeah. What do you take from this on a musical level? What does it mean that this was a music fest with no music? and no one cared and what do we take away from all this? I don't think it necessarily reflects the average music fan. Like I think a lot of people put up with a lot to go. I mean I've gone to festivals and been covered up to my waist in mud. People will go through a lot to go see a live band and they will spend a certain amount of money to go to Lollapalooza or Coachella or Bonnaroo but I do think this definitely speaks to how much people want to appeal to that certain upper crust of music fan and I think that there is still this feeling for a lot of these big corporations and these festivals to prioritize them over the fans who are willing to spend a little bit extra than they would for a regular concert to go to these three-day, multi-day music events. But I do think there is still a prioritization over the people who can be pictured there and make it look cool. And I was impressed, I'd say, in, in the Netflix documentary when they showed all the festival goers arriving because they see these tents. So like I said, there aren't these luxury villas, tents. But there was like a fully set up stage in the background. It was like mm-hmm. the only thing that they had together, it seemed like, <laughs> was a stage with the lights and the sound like it was ready to go. Nobody was there to play on it. So that's the one thing they actually seemed like they had together. Yeah. And yet, of course, there was no one to play. So it was kind of an ironic situation. <laughs> it also interested me that it was based around this ridiculous app that was supposed to be like a Tinder to match bands with, I guess, it seemed vague, but I guess the idea was for rich people to book them to play at bar mitzvahs and weddings yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and, or and, and for and corporate events. Or yeah. for colleges or something. To book bands is a difficult yeah. process <laughs> that requires going to agents and everything. Bullshit. There are websites, if you want to book 
book, you just Google it. I know. If, there's concert if you have the money, it's extremely easy. I know. This is the, as soon as I heard that, I was like, that's not even a good idea. As stupid and niche an idea as it was in the first place, it already exists. Yep. It was so stupid. And it's also like to assume that this is like a widespread need, yeah. that there's just like millions of people with enough money to book a band. It was built on an edifice of fraud and lies in the first place. It's so crazy. I mean, that's like Billy McFarlane's entire thing, though, was like he tried to make the black card cool for millennials, which is like no one was asking for that. Well, it's even- like doing this app, doing the other post fire fraud, which was the VIP thing for more NYC millennials. It was just like this idea of very, very specific things that appeal to a certain past generation that like was cool at one point that is meant to like appeal to just one particular set of people. The frightening part is it was magnesis. So this credit card thing, yeah, this is very non-music, so we won't dwell on this, but mm-hmm. there was actually tremendous demand for it. That's what was <laughs> the most scary thing. But it was so incredibly stupid. Your existing credit card, whatever your random credit card is, they would scan the data and put it on this metal slab to make it look cool. There was no credit card. And then you would get a bullshit membership to some... It was so insane. It would be one thing if he just did it, but there was like a huge waiting list for it. Then the other thing that just boggles the mind is when they told the attendees that they should fill up their wristbands with money, (laughs) with at least $3,000. And within days, these kids put $900,000 onto these wristbands. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Back to the music part, Ja Rule. (laughs) Okay, so Ja Rule had a a couple of nice hits in the early 2000s. What I'm very confused about is this treatment of him like he's some kind of absolute gold-plated music legend. There's a moment in the Hulu documentary when someone says, you know, if Ja Rule is involved, you know something has credibility. And I was like, are we on, like, what the fuck is happening? That was insane. I saw somebody point out that when a lot of these people, and even Billy himself, that they were very young at the peak of Ja Rule, so they still see him through the eyes of, like, their 12-year-old self, like this hugely famous rapper. They still see him in that sense, which is really funny, because he's so far past his prime. I think it also really speaks to this early aughts nostalgia that really (laughs) runs rampant and also, like, is very accessible to a lot of people. The Ja Rule era is very much, like, for a certain set of millennials, like, the golden era and kind of the untouchable part of music. And (laughs) I do think that... I love the Ja Rule era. The Ja Rule Rule generation. I was, like, watching this documentary with a lot of my friends who we all, you know, went to college at the same time, maybe went to college in, like, New York or kind of, like, city areas and any party that you went to in college between 2008 to 2014-16, you're going to only hear, like, Nelly and Ja Rule and kind of this era of hip-hop that's kind of pop but, like, still really catchy and still really popular and still really fun. Like, that's just, like, the popular music. So Ja Rule made sense in a very weird way to appeal to Billy. So Blink-182 on that lineup was, like, that was obviously the peak before that. Right. So that was, like, a whole other era they were trying to reach the other earlier They have young fans, too. Mm -hmm. There's been a weird Blink resurgence in recent years. And then, you know, I Miss You and all that stuff came around the same era as the Ja Rule. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you and I get it. I still don't get it. It's it's stupid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because there seems to be this idea that Ja Rule also has some kind of tremendous personal credibility, too, that if it's got the Ja seal of approval, you can trust it. There was a strong implication of that. and It made me dizzy. I didn't understand what the hell they were talking about. It definitely also speaks to this idea that if you are really rich and you are really white, like you want credibility from a black artist. Like you want credibility from a rap artist. Like you want to look cool because you have a rapper on your side. Like Who, by the way, is 42, which is not old, but it's just funny that... (laughs) 
<laughs> Everyone else is 22 and he's 42 hanging out drinking beers with him. That was another weird uncommented on but situation. He's famous. Yes. Yeah. He's famous. And he's that has a lot of mileage in that world of fame is still fame. Yeah. For me, I actually think, again, it divorced itself from the actual music. I bet a lot of these kids, I bet Billy McFarlane can't name a Ja Rule song. Oh, he probably only knows like <laughs> Always on Time and he's that's it. I bet he doesn't even know that. He just knows like it's just a brand name. He's just a famous brand. Yeah. You do wonder how far he went down the list to get the Ja Rule. Oh, yeah. Not, you know, like, well, Ja was involved with, with the credit card maybe, thing. Or, whatever. Yeah. I don't or know, even like but... DMX maybe they could bring well, in. Yeah. He was like, who doesn't have a big brand behind him right now? Right. Let me be the big brand. Well, well, not in Ja Rule's defense, but in, I guess, appreciation of Ja Rule as a businessman, he realized that he had a certain amount of capital as a random famous person. It's just basically like a name that young people would have heard of. And again, even if they know one song or no songs, he capitalized on his fame. He also got out of prison in 2013 and needed to no doubt earn some money and very smartly yeah dived into this world of tech dudes and young rich guys and figured out a way in i mean the billy mcfarland judgment was not the best in his choice of young rich guy and jack kind of escaped blame for all this it seems like yeah yeah he started partnering with billy before fire i don't remember which of the documentaries they kind of blur together after a certain point but like in one of the documentaries they did mention that he did end up starting a talent booking app after all this went down so I think he was able to kind of get away with a lot of the stuff because I don't think he had his name necessarily like legally attached to it beyond sort of just being the face the kind of famous face yeah, he was lucky to not be booked to perform because mm-hmm. we definitely we'd be talking about him even more <laughs> no, yeah. like bailed him. that's the thing no one no these people actually wanted to see him perform yeah <laughs> they have Ja Rule but they didn't even put him at, anywhere on the lineup at no point was that even mentioned as a possibility <laughs> yeah. like, which goes to my point I feel like they barely they, they spent he, millions to like maybe book Drake at one point but they just like they didn't even think Ja Rule like he's already <sighs> just kind of here like we have the stage we might as well just have him distract everyone the thing is it's just all not that easy and putting on a festival is not easy. It's to be done by professionals. There's like a lack of respect for the craft of doing these things. Like you can't, you can't just do it this well, way. Well, and you especially can't do it on a distant island. That makes it just infinitely harder. And I'll tell you what, and we'll get to other screwed up festivals of the past, because I think that will segue nicely in the next segment. But what makes me mad is I know from my past experience that a lack of attention to these things can cause it could have been much worse. When you're putting together an event with thousands of people, there's a serious responsibility for their safety and things can go extremely wrong. They literally are saying, well, at least no one died. And it's like, people could have. Mm -hmm. And that's what's scary as far as like, you know, for music fans, it's like, you need to know and admittedly, again, these people were not music fans, but still, it can get really scary. Putting on these events requires a serious amount of attention to like, where's the water going to come from? What's the crowd control? And that's something the Woodstock guys have had trouble with repeatedly. So I wonder, I wonder if this is a, was an outgrowth of the preponderance of festivals. You know, they looked at Coachella and Bonnaroo and all this. Absolutely. Well, there's so many, then how hard could it be? Mm-hmm. You know. Let's top it. And again, the topping it had nothing to do with music. The topping it had to do with selling a, a quote-unquote experience that never made sense in the first place. That was a complete fantasy that even if the thing had gone off perfectly, you wouldn't have been hanging out with the models all weekend. Mm -hmm. It was an insane delusional fantasy and everyone's been drawing a lot of metaphors from it. There's an amazing part at the end of the Netflix 
thing where it's like they're describing Billy McFarlane and it's every word of it could have been Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, he's a compulsive liar and he's going to have to pay the consequences. And it's a metaphor for everything. It's interesting to note that Billy McFarland is from basically the sister town that's right next to where Jared Kushner is from in New Jersey. So that, that's interesting. I would maybe take a closer look at what's in the water there. But the thing about Woodstock, when they say in the Fire Festival, they compare it to Woodstock. Andy, there were some similarities in the original Woodstock yeah. from the beginning. Right. I think that it's sort of funny that Woodstock, it was nowhere near the town of Woodstock because they had to keep moving it. So they wound up at like Bethel Woods and it almost didn't happen because they had no location for it. They got a farm at the last minute and the stage, it was very incomplete that there's no roads. You know, it was a one lane road with crazy traffic. There was no water. There was no food. There were major problems. The bands were almost not paid. They had to demand money to yeah, go on. and they were phoned by helicopter, and it was all out of order, and the food backstage was laced with drugs, and it was just complete chaos. Yeah, if you ever talk to, which we have, artists yeah. who actually played it, their version of it is so different. They were lucky to get on stage. They often don't even right. remember playing because right. it was so... That- yeah, and that famous Jimi Hendrix set, he played on Monday morning to largely a empty field that was full of garbage. So what what the real sort of miracle of Woodstock and the reason, in addition to the music, the reason why it sort of entered into legend the way it did is because of, despite all those problems, everyone was so peaceful. It, and they made a great movie out of it, which sort of glossed over the problems. Well, that's true yeah. too, but immediately afterwards, that's what was so remarkable. And what it did speak to was everything. It's, it's almost corny to start talking about, but a certain sense of yeah. generational solidarity and the fact that the music was so spectacular, it kept right. everything together, even though it should have been, it should have been like Woodstock 99, right. because the conditions were as bad or worse. Yeah, but they all came together and they fed each other and they took care of each other, but- Far Then months later was Altamont, which was billed as the Woodstock of the West. Same, and Michael Lang. He was involved with it to a much smaller degree, but he was involved. He he had some involvement. Woodstock, in a way, paved the way for fire because it showed the lucrative potential of the counterculture. You know, back then, there were a lot of people in the music business who knew that people bought records and this rock thing was a big thing. But Woodstock, when you had a movie that made $15 million the next year, which was a lot of money in 1970, and then the, the soundtrack album, which was a triple record, so it cost more was number one. And I've talked to people in the music business who were back then who said, oh my God, that's when we realized this hippie thing could be really lucrative. Like we can make a lot of money, even though the Beatles and everybody had sold a lot of records, but Woodstock crystallized it for all these people. Like if you have a brand and bring all these people together, you can make a lot. And I think that paved the way in some ways for well, the something year, like and, fire. And the year before, we're really in ancient history now, but the year before was Monterey Pop. Sorry, two years before was 67. And Monterey Pop really did go very smoothly. Monterey Pop was very sophisticated. I once wrote a story about it. One of the things that really fascinated me is Monterey Pop was so well planned that they had a video screen. Yeah. Some early projection. I forgot the exact but, technology, but you could actually watch it on the second screen. That blew me away. If you put that in a movie, everyone would say that that's completely <laughs> Impossible, but they had that. Right, but they didn't sleep there, right? It was a much smaller scale deal. Well, you had seats. It was reserved seats, and you go home at night. Right, right. And then what happened is people started getting greedy, and immediately, within two years, you have Woodstock. There's something obviously very attractive if you're an entrepreneur of like, I'll throw this huge thing and like haul in all the money. It's a siren call. As long as we still have electricity and music, people will try to do this. And there's this some kind of tendency, again, to underestimate how difficult it yeah. is to have a giant but, gathering of people. And what's funny is that after all the Woodstock clones of the early 70s, that was after Watkins Glen and some of these others, that they didn't really happen again for like 25 years. Well, 
Well, for example, in the states. Yeah, there was an issue um, post Woodstock where people were convinced, and this is interesting in sort of like Napster era politics came in early, which is like music should be free, man. And mm-hmm. so there was a, a lot of problems with people trying to knock down fences at hippie music festivals because of this really strong belief that music should be free. Right. So that was a thing. Yeah, and the year after was just, uh, there was one attempt after another to do a new Woodstock all around the country and sometimes in Europe as well. And, you know, they were just disasters, most of them. There was a lot of gate crashing. There was a famous one in Powder Ridge, called the Powder Ridge Festival in Connecticut, where it was three days. I mean, you look at the lineup, it was like Sly and the Family Stone and Chuck Berry and Fleetwood Mac and James Taylor and Van Morrison. It was like this amazing lineup. And then right before it was supposed to happen, the town of Middleton, Connecticut, just like freaked out. And they were like, we don't want all these hippies. And they, they had an injunction and canceled it. But tens of thousands of people still showed up and there were no bands. So everybody just hung out for three days and partied, but it, with hard drugs. And afterwards, there was an investigation by the state that they determined that the mob had moved in to sell drugs. They realized it was such a big audience, <laughs> was such a big market in this field in Connecticut, and it was just a whole disaster. That was so. actually Billy McFarlane's grandfather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, was, Jimmy McFarlane. That was a joke in case Billy McFarlane's grandfather's alive and wants to sue us. But yeah, I frankly would not be surprised. I hadn't heard that story, David, until you told it to me earlier, and it, that really, it does show like how long this kind of thing has been going on. It's too bad there weren't cameras there. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There's lots of photographs, but there's no actual film footage, so, unfortunately. So basically, I mean, not to dwell on it, but basically the crowd was like, fuck it, we'll just have a festival where we just hang out and take drugs with no music for three days. Exactly. Yeah. And there was no plumbing and no water and all that stuff like a fire as well. So it was even worse. You know, it was crazy. So but they, that happened a lot. I mean, not to that extreme, but festivals were canceled the last minute, gate crashing. Yeah. It was so like, it was then by the 80s, they didn't exist. Well, let's and, talk about Altamont for just okay. a minute. What was the essence in your mind of the ultimate problem that led oh. to problem was i mean there's so many but they moved the location at the last minute so there's no time to prep anything and the stage it was like three inches off the ground <laughs> and <laughs> it was and it was just so many goddamn people that were descending and it was and then, in a dust bowl yeah place. and it was and it was, and it was like disgusting horrible, yeah the middle of the desert kind of thing yeah it was a really rough environment and then of course the hell's angels were brought in and it was just one long horrible day <laughs> But it was CSNY, it was all of these big bands that had been forgotten that they even played, and they did play. It was just the pressure around the stage kept building and building and building, and then they all got beaten with the... <laughs> by the Hells Angels and it just grew to this crescendo where a murder happened right in front of the stage. Yeah, one of the reporters covering for a long time, Grail Marcus told me he was backstage and a bunch of people like climbed on top of a truck to like watch it and the truck collapsed. I mean like everywhere around it was it, just- I like, mean, what I'm hearing is just all these resonances because what you just said I basically saw happen at Woodstock 99. This is like some kind of weird like intense history repeating situation. It's just these festivals want to happen and collapse over and over and over again. And what's amazing and I want to get to Andy's point about the weird gap in festivals, which probably has a lot to do with Altamont and all these disastrous festivals. But what's amazing is how for so long Bonnaroo and Coachella proceeded without incident and have proceeded without incident. Yeah. You know, those are very and, well put together festivals. And they started months following Woodstock 99 that it was weird that the first Coachella, it was like four months but later. But it wasn't that weird because in some ways they were learning from what people don't remember 
and I can't blame them for not remembering because it was 20 years ago. Jesus Christ. But Coachella was very much a response to Woodstock 99 or was marketed that way yeah. and, and planned that way. The first Coachella was so cool. I didn't go, but the lineup was so impeccably cool that it essentially would drive away 90% of the people who attended Woodstock 99. It was all super alt stuff. But let's get to the idea of this break. What was behind that? Was it just because I, the series of disasters? I think that stadium concerts started to happen. There'd be these multi, there'd be these long stadium shows. And it's so much easier at a stadium to book nine bands when there's bathrooms and there's infrastructure and there's security that's built in. It just became a lot easier to go to Giant Stadium and do a concert than a big field somewhere. There was the Us Festival, right? Yeah, yeah, but that was Apple money. And it was that a was, Steve Wozniak from Apple put it on. And you didn't sleep there either. That was multi-day event of different themes each day. That was just a big concert out in a field across three days. It's a whole different game when you live there for a weekend. And again, like... Steve Wozniak just made a billion dollars and the first thing he thinks of is I'm going to put on a concert. Yeah. It's just, there's something about this. That it just, <laughs> well, as soon as you get some money or want to make some money, it, well, you it just was, run to do this. And it was the same thought. I'm doing my Woodstock. Yeah. You know. A couple of years later, after the last Us Festival, I interviewed uh, Billy Sheehan, who was in David Lee Roth's band, and he said we were rehearsing in David Lee's basement. I don't understand how this worked, but David Lee in his basement had a massive thing of ice with all the liquor and beer still in it <laughs> from the Us Festival. He didn't quite explain how that ice was still there. Maybe so it was a cold room, but David Lee had yeah. transported the entire okay. big, massive block of ice with liquor into his house from the Us Festival. Van Halen say that. that supposedly that's the worst show Van Halen ever played, is they say, and it was also the most well-documented of that era. Well, yeah, there's so many because there's so much money that Steve Wozniak, he could burn that. They booked all these bands that they weren't even touring then. Let's just talk about the Us Festival. Yeah, I have something to say about this. The legendary Us Festival. Actually, the lineup was sick. On the uh, first day on Friday night was a Gang of Four, the Ramones, B-52's Talking Heads and the Police. That was New Wave Day. Yeah, so that was New Wave Day. Can you imagine? (laughs) No, it was everybody. It it was pretty incredible. We need a documentary on the Us Festival. Has there ever been? I don't think so, right? They filmed everything. It was released on DVD, I think, as just the music, but not a documentary. Day two had Santana, the Cars, and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Pat Benatar, and the Kinks. (laughs) Yeah. And wasn't the third night the metal? Then night there was metal Peter night. And whatever? Yeah, that was Motley Crue and everybody. Yeah. Were, oh, actually, there was one in '82 and one in '83. Right, there's two. It was '83. We're going deep on, on, on Us Festival, <laughs> but '83 had Heavy Metal Day, which was Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Judas Priest, Triumph, Scorpions, and Van Halen. It was a big moment. It, it was like the birth of hair metal in, the, in some ways on a big yeah, platform. Uh, uh, Lil Steven and the Disciples of Soul played on Monday. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> enough for us. Anyway, enough, <laughs> enough, enough of the Us Festival. Yes. Yeah, so. Woodstock 99. Let's talk. We can briefly Woodstock 94. Again, Woodstock 94 had more problems than people remember. It was actually, again, they were just lucky that it didn't completely devolve, but they were on the edge of some serious problems. I was looking at, and I wasn't there. Were you there, David? I was not there, no. Watched it live, but was not there. But, I mean, it, it definitely devolved. Those mud people were not a sign of uh, good management. Well, it was raining, uh, right? There was uh, thousands of people hauling rain-sodden bedding and wearing garbage bag ponchos, found themselves forced to stand in a mile-long line for hours before they were able to board shuttle buses that took them to parking lots as far as 30 miles away. So there were some problems with Woodstock 94. And, but- they, and they booked Crosby, Sills, Nash in between the Rollins Band and Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> which was also not a good idea for, like, who came up with that? Yeah. 
was kind of fun. <laughs> but Woodstock 99, and I have a feeling there's a lot to say about it. Yeah. When we get closer to the anniversary, we'll probably do a whole episode about it. But Woodstock 99 did not go well. It wasn't just about the riots that ended it. It was a very difficult experience throughout. You know, it was held on a uh, an Air Force base that I learned in a, an investigative report that I did at the time with my uh, colleague Chris Nelson. It, it was a super fun site. <laughs> so, you know, which didn't necessarily pose any direct dangers, but certainly like was not what you think of for Woodstock. The sewage was out of control. I personally waded through, a, you know, a 12 inch deep thing of sewage and had to buy new shoes. I, I could talk about it a lot. It was a nightmare. Yeah. But I spoke with Michael Lang about two weeks ago and he tried to explain what happened. Mm. Yes, he tried to explain what happened to me too. But yeah, yeah so let's, let's hear his latest. He was yeah. like, that was an MTV event. It was not a proper Woodstock. I didn't book it myself, which was a huge mistake. So they brought in all of these very aggressive bands and it was an Air Force base that had no shade and he's like look on a weekend that was 75 degrees that would have been great but it was 100 degrees and the kids were baking and he showed up and he claimed that he learned the water is being sold at like five dollars per bottle or like four dollars or whatever and he freaked out and he's like look you know he was like most people there they had a fine time a about 200 people they ruined it for everybody that was his take Sure. Anyway, so that was a disaster. <laughs> and that was the sound of rock at the time. They had Limp Bizkit and Kid Rock. It was the peak of the rap metal thing. So, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, these are happened to be, they, those were the big bands that you would have booked at the time, so unfortunately. Yes. Well, in the Limp Bizkit video that followed, they actually had fake versions of my headlines about mm-hmm. the people injured at the Limp Bizkit show. I mean, I, I talked to kids who were like broke their ankles and stuff. The show, it was, it was I mean, I went to the medical test. Anyway, we'll talk about that more later. <laughs> but going to that So Coachella, yes, was a reaction to that. Mm -hmm. Super hip initial lineup and super sort of cultivated atmosphere. And that and Bonnaroo, like, yes, very well put together. That said, I always feel like there's always the potential for things to go wrong. When you have enormous crowds storming from one stage to the other, I don't know if you experienced this at Coachella now. Um, Well, I was actually going to bring up Lollapalooza once it moved to Destination Festival in Chicago, because I started going the year after that. And I mean, where Lollapalooza is set up is literally in the middle of downtown Chicago. Like, you leave the festival and you are walking through just like all the street main street state street michigan like you're going straight into the city like into the heart of where people are going to be working especially on a friday and la Plusa is relatively well run and i found it to be the festival itself to be great like you obviously are not spending the night in the middle of grant park it's <laughs> relatively smaller than a lot of other festivals yeah. you're going back to a hotel but the crowds leaving the festival have caused a big issue in chicago and i know there's been a some pushback year after year from the city to shut down Lollapalooza because of the crowd size as it gets bigger every single year as they try to accommodate the demand for tickets in the way that festival culture has become so popular with this generation with music fans with people wanting to go to destination festivals and planning their year around going to a three now four day festival in downtown chicago So even with the well-run ones, it's like because of the size of the crowds, because of the demand, because of, you know, it's gotten bigger every single year. The first year I went, it was only one headliner on Sunday night or two headliners on Friday and Saturday. Now it's four days and four headliners at least every single night. People are packing the entire festival. Trying to get out of there is insane. So I know there's pushback for even that. Coachella was kind of similarly a mess. 
trying to get out of it, trying to get through it. Obviously, I don't know how it's been the last however many years that it's been, but I know that with that, it's definitely similar issues with crowds and traffic and trying to get people and controlling all of this in one place. So we thought we'd finish up by talking about a couple festivals that are coming up this year, which are anniversary festivals for Woodstock. One is actually called Woodstock 50. Yes. The other one is like Bethel it's Arts. It's the Bethel Woods concert for the, for the arts whatnot, or yeah. something. Yeah. Yes. The deal is the Bethel one is at the original site. Right, which was turned into a 15,000 seat amphitheater now, where they book shows all summer long. Whereas the other one is put together by Michael Lang, who still owns the name Woodstock, Yeah, and is being held where? It's at Watkins Glen. It's the same site as the festival that was in 73, which is even bigger than Woodstock crowd-wise. And I'm finding these festivals confusing. Who is the target audience? I spoke to Michael Lang, and he wants all ages, but he's gearing his Woodstock at like adults also, so there's no hotels there, really. So he said that there's going to be very nice glamping tents with a lamp and floor and four I'm walls. back to those fire festival tents. And he said that the bathrooms will be super clean and they won't smell and they will need to be emptied the entire time and then they'll make fertilizer. They want adults to come glamp for the weekend in a field. As you say that, I'm flashing back towards taking a step and realizing I'd stepped into sewage. Yeah. No, he says that portal potty technology has advanced in huge ways recently (laughs) and it's got a game changer. And to get adults there also, he's having major stars, as he put it, do tributes to the band and Janis Joplin and Joe Cocker. I think that he might be overestimating the audience for a Joe Cocker tribute. Well, he managed Joe Cocker for a while, so I think he's very in the Joe Cocker Oh, good. World. So he has a lot of objectivity on, yes, on the appeal to <laughs> And he says... Who, who's going to be... Tri- is yeah. it going to be like... Is like Billie Eilish going to come and pay tribute to Joe <laughs> Cocker? What, what, we can only what, wish. What, what, I, I don't know plan? who's doing the honor, but he told me that they are booking legacy bands that played the first Woodstock. So, so I've oh. become obsessed with this. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I just Andy wrote a, an interesting article in which you basically proved there is no legacy band well, that can play Woodstock. I asked the who might... <laughs> Myself. I asked Pete Townsend in his own house, and, and he was like, hell no. I asked Neil Young on Tuesday, <laughs> and he said no. By the way, I feel like you're doing, like, I asked Bob Dylan, I asked the right, Beatles, right, and none yeah. of them play it's, fucking it's like the seeker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did ask Neil Young, he said no, and Santana spoke to my colleague Corey, who said that he wanted to play Michael Lang's, but it seemed a bit disorganized, so he's playing Beth the Woods. So in my mind... That just leaves Dead and Company as a legacy Woodstock band that can really draw a crowd. And John Fogarty. And John Fogarty. Yeah, you could bring in Joan Country Bias. Joe and the Fish. Is, yeah. you know, Country so, Joe is around. Not the yes, fish. yeah. You can bring, bring, bring in like in like half a mountain and can't heat. But, but didn't John Michael Sebastian? Lang hint that he would try to reunite Creedence? Well, I want to put that in, in careful context. Okay. I was talking to him about band reunions. And he goes, who are your dream reunions? And I said, well, CSNY. And he's like, well, I've tried. That's a big mess. I said, yeah, and Santana, if you got Greg Rawley and everything. And then he unprompted, he turns to me and he goes, how about Credence? And I'm like, well, that would be something, sort of. <laughs> Tom Fogarty, the rhythm guitarist of Credence, is long dead. Yes. And John Fogarty despises the surviving members of Credence. He despises them with the fire of a thousand suns. But he's told me that in theory... Maybe he's willing to forgive them at some point. But then Doug and Stu got asked about that. Then they were like, fuck that guy. Never. So even they don't want to play with him. So I can't imagine a Credence reunion. And I can't imagine it being a huge... 
I just Dude. pictured it's like in the end it's going to be like just the exact acts that we're supposed to play Fire Festival. It's going to be Woodstock. <laughs> it's going to be Major Lazer, yeah. the Good Music Family, which by the way probably was never going to include Kanye. Yeah. It was just going to be like Tiana Taylor or whatever. Not to settle for some forty one instead of Blink. Yeah, they, yeah, they won't even be able to get Blink one two. Learn their lesson. Now that Warp Tour is over, it's just going to be all the Warp Tour acts. Don't you guys agree with me that there's almost nothing that will get adults to come sleep in a field no. for three days? They don't want to do well, it. What do you mean how- by adults too? Like the original? No, I like, think I think I think I like think people who are older seconds. than 27. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Or I'm calling yeah. adults. I think they won't want to do it. I mean, I don't understand what these shows are going to be. And they were saying other names. I mean, right now it seems like Santana at Beth Woods. They've won that. That's the Woodstock anniversary. Then well, that's the see. best opportunity. It seems like. Let's see who they get. If they bring in huge, huge bands, it could be a big deal. But if it's just Cardi B and people who are playing all of the other festivals, it won't seem special. And he wants 100,000 people at Watkins Glen. For multiple days? Yeah, it'll be a three-day thing that will be sleeping. So I just sort of, I hope they pulled off. It it will be awesome. I'm very curious to see the headliners. Who would be the big modern rock bands? I mean, rock is obviously, you know, hip-hop and dance-pop. That's leading the culture. So I'm just throwing it out there. Who would be the big rock bands that they would get? I mean, there's vintage ones, Radiohead, whatever. But who's a modern rock band who would draw that many people? There is none. Yeah, it um, would be like the be same like, acts that play like Lollapalooza. Yeah. It would be like the Chili Peppers. Which are Radiohead, 90s Aging yeah. alt bands. Maybe like right. LCD Sound System. Like. even groups that have huge hits that are like Imagine Dragons or Maroon 5, they aren't big festival anchors. Right, right. I don't get it. I don't really get it because unless it's just a festival, in which case, why call it Woodstock? I don't really get it. I mean, again, I have an inbred skepticism due to my Woodstock 99 experience and reporting. You've got to get so, over Woodstock yeah, 99, yeah. Brian. It's time. <laughs> it's 20 years. It's the same guy. It's the same guy. But it's, it's not John Shear. Yes, sure. It's Shear, it's, whatever. It's not, I get to correct you for once. But yes. it, it's the same guy. He has a history of some successful concerts and then a history of problems. I am suspicious. And I also just think it's ill-conceived. We'll see. The smaller one makes more sense to me. Have a nice little concert. A hundred thousand people to watch a Joe Cocker tribute. (laughs) (laughs) And I I like Joe Cocker. Mad Dog's an Englishman. Awesome. But even a Janis Joplin tribute, does he know how... I mean, actually, Janis Joplin tribute is much more plausible. Well, he said that... Like Halsey gets up and does a Janis Uh, Joplin tribute. Don't even say that. (laughs) You know what's happening. Anyway, so this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We have just booked Halsey to pay tribute to Janis Joplin. We're excited about that. Be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.